Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. More than 19,000 men have appeared in a Major League Baseball game. And when you look back through baseball history, obviously there have been so many great players who have enjoyed long careers. But there were some terrific players who were off to wonderful starts and they had their careers cut short by injury. And today we're going to talk about the short career of one of those guys. A guy who won 39 games over a two-year period, and then, just like that, he was gone. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of Ray Collins. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. And once again, thanks for joining me on this ride through the annals of sports as we take a look back at the great but forgotten careers of so many stars whom time is forgotten. And today, we're going to talk about the career of a terrific pitcher, Ray Collins, a guy whom baseball legend Clark Griffith once said of, Ray Collins hasn't a thing, yet he is one of the best pitchers in the American League, one of the two or three best left-handed pitchers in the game. So what kind of a game did Ray Collins have, and what made him so good? Well, joining us in just a few moments will be Tom Simon, who writes about a very unique group of baseball stars from the past, guys from his home state of Vermont. And Collins is one of the two or three greatest to ever come out of Vermont. In fact, Collins loved Vermont so much that he spurned the chance to play for several major league teams in order to stay as close as home as possible, which meant he wound up signing with the Boston Red Sox. More on that later. Collins was a dominant college pitcher for the University of Vermont, and at the same time, he dominated in the minor leagues. Yes, you could play in minor league baseball at the same time you were still in college. Of course, the rules have changed since Collins played back in the early 1900s, and we'll get into all of that with Tom in just a moment. First, though, time to take care of a little business. You can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, anywhere you get podcasts. Check out our page on Facebook. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram, or go to the Sports Forgotten Heroes website, sportsfh.com. And that's where you can find more information on the stars we talk about, our guests, links to more articles and video, see who else is on the schedule, and there are also links for you to contact us. Please let us know how we're doing. If you have any suggestions for stars that you'd like to learn more about, or if you just want to leave us a comment, please go to sportsfh.com and let us know. And of course, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you can rate us. And as always, thanks for your support. Now, back to Ray Collins. He broke into the majors with the Red Sox in 1909 and played for seven years before a shoulder injury ended his career at the young age of just 28. And as Tom will talk about, leaving the game so early truly had a negative impact on Ray's life. All right. Let's get to our discussion about Ray Collins with Tom Simon now. Tom, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Warren. It's, I'm glad to be here. Awesome. I'm really looking forward to this. And right off the bat, who was Ray Collins, and what makes his story so interesting? 
Ray Collins was a Yankee. And by that, I don't mean a New York Yankee because of course he pitched for the Red Sox, but uh, he, he was a descendant. He could trace his roots all the way back to the Mayflower. And uh, his family was among the first settlers of Burlington, Vermont, which is our state's biggest city. Um, so he, uh, ba- back in the 1830s, his family purchased a farm just north of Burlington in the town of Colchester. And actually, where I'm sitting here right now as we record this, I'm in Colchester, probably about two or three miles from the Ray Collins farm. Oh, cool. Uh, but uh, but anyway, his family bought that property in the 1830s, and uh, he was and Ray was born in the 1880s, and he eventually inherited that farm that had been in his family um, for all all those decades. And uh, so he he grew up. Uh, his family, even though they had the farm in Colchester, they moved around to different farms because the farm in Colchester really wasn't a very good farm. It was wet. And mm-hmm. it was it was low, and so um, for 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 dairy farming, it was not a it was not a good place. So they rented f- uh, property in the uh, Intervale in Burlington, and they had one of the largest uh, farms in in uh, Vermont um, where they raised Jersey cattle. Um, but uh, something sad happened to Ray when he was only ten years old. Uh, his father died of scarlet fever. So um, that was kind of like the first sad thing in, in a string of sad things that happened to Ray Collins throughout his lifetime. Um, but his, his story is so intertwined with the history of Vermont, you know, right from his ancestors being mm-hmm. among the town's first mm-hmm. settlers. And then he lived, he lived in the Burlington area right up until his death in the 1960s. Um, he served on the University of Vermont. He, of course, attended the University of Vermont, where he was a star athlete in mm-hmm. multiple sports. Um, and uh, after his major league career, he returned to Vermont. He um, lived on the farm. Uh, it was it was he scraped to make um, to make ends meet living on that farm. And because, as I said earlier, it was such a lousy farm for dairy farming that it was a real struggle for him. Uh, but he was a pillar in the community. He served on the board of trustees at the University of Vermont. In fact, he was part of the board of trustees um, when the university actually went from public to private. I'm sorry, from private to public. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was a leader um, in in the area. And even though he was um, not always a really happy person, uh, according to his son, who actually died just a few years ago and lived into his 90s. Mm. Um, but um but he was considered, you know, just a, a, a real, um, you know, mover and shaker in the Burlington area, someone that people really respected. So um, what I find interesting about his story is not only was he a great pitcher, but he was also a, a great leader. And his whole entire life was spent right in these parts. So um, very cool. he's really, really tied tight, uh, deeply in the community mm-hmm. um, here here in the, in the Burlington area. So I think... You probably have an interesting story as well, at least when it comes to writing biographies for the Sabre Bio Project. From what I can ascertain, you like to write about guys who have a connection to Vermont. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So so I moved to Vermont in 1993 from Washington, D.C., and uh, the first thing, one of the first things I did when I got here is I looked in the Sabre directory to see if there were any other Sabre members in in the Burlington area. Um, and I made some phone calls and we all got together and watched one of the games of the 1993 World Series. I remember it was the Blue Jays and, and the Phillies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that was the beginning of what turned out to be the Larry Gardner uh, chapter of the Society for American Baseball Research. Oh, okay. And uh, and we uh, we ended up um, meeting three or four times each year. We had a really vibrant, active chapter with you know we'd get about twenty people that would show up to the meetings because it's a small state, but you know per capita our Saber chapter was right up there with 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 the rest of them. And uh, and we had some some really interesting people uh, who were a part of our chapter. So. Um, as we were having these meetings, we thought, boy, it would be fun since we are a research um, society to to do some research. And we we decided that we would write a book about all the baseball players who were born in Vermont to make it to the major leagues. So that's how my interest in these guys started. 
we ended up um, divvying up the 35 or so players that we were aware of at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then we um, put them all together into a book. And uh, we ended up having the book published by New England Press. And the Vermont Historical Society ended up doing a big symposium and exhibit based on the research we'd done. We had tracked down a lot of the descendants of these players who had memorabilia and all kinds of things that they would pull down from their attic. And they lent that to the exhibition that took place and was up for a year down in the state capitol in Montpelier. Very nice. And uh, it was was really – it was a great, it was a great group project. Uh, it really pulled our group together, uh, to work on something as a, you know, as a, as a group. And, um, and actually this project was before the Sabre bio project committee, hmm. um, even existed. And hmm. and was, I think part of uh, you did have to ask Mark Armour the details, but I think it was one of the inspirations for Mark when he decided to, to try to, you know, do a, a, um, a, a bio um, committee. In fact, I remember talking to him at the time and saying, you know, you want to write a bio about every ma- major league ball player? It's crazy. Like, you know, how, how are you, you going to do that? I mean, he had a hard enough time writing about the 35 or so who came from Vermont. You're going to do one on everybody, but you know, my gosh, he's done an amazing job. Um, and, and, you know, they add, they add many every week and it's, it's really cool to see that project flourish. But I think that we were, you know, part of inspiration for that project. Wow, that's that's great. All right, back to Collins. As far as Major League Baseball players are concerned, where does he fit as far as great players from Vermont? As far as great players from Vermont, he's probably in the top three or four. Um, and of course, it all depends on how you define what is a, what what is a player from Vermont. Carlton Fisk was born in Vermont, so we included him in our book. But Carlton Fisk doesn't consider himself a Vermonter. In fact, he uh, he was so offended when the Red Sox um, um, wrote on his Red Sox Hall of Fame plaque that he was a native Vermonter that he insisted that they recast the plaque at a cost of like a couple thousand bucks to say that he was actually from New Hampshire because that's where his home was. It just so happened that the nearest hospital was in Vermont and Bellas oh, Falls. Okay. So, uh, so if you, if you're talking about where a guy was born, then Colin Fisk is the greatest. If you talk about, you know, kind of where a guy really lived his life and grew up and all that, uh, you'd probably have to say Larry Gardner is the greatest baseball player to come from Vermont. But, uh, but Ray Collins is right up there, you know, in the top three or four, along with maybe Ray Fisher, Bertie Tebbets was born in, in Burlington. Um, but, uh, but those, but most of our baseball players have come from, you know, before 1920 and mm-hmm. actually quite a few of them from the 19th century. Uh, in fact, I was just looking at uh, the, you know, the, uh, as we record this, the major league baseball draft was yesterday. Yep, yep. And I, I read an article uh, that had that listed the top prospect from the, 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 player most likely to be drafted first from each of the 50 states mm-hmm. and vermont was i, I don't I, did, I should have checked to see where alaska was but vermont was the only state that i saw that that apparently they they interviewed a bunch of scouts and not a, a single player from vermont who was likely to be drafted so um we've kind of fallen off the baseball map um here in the 21st century but there was a time back before 1920 when vermont you know reduced its fair share of, of major league ball players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, playing up in that uh, northeast corridor, the real New England states, I guess, um, not a whole lot of baseball players come out of there anymore. No, our season is short. That's yeah. for sure. In yeah. fact, uh, uh, you know, our, our high school season, uh, you know, when it starts in, in April, I mean, we're likely to get we're lucky to get any games in in April. It's really uh, it's really May when when baseball weather finally comes to Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we're not we're not a hotbed for producing baseball players. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. We can drink well skiing, though. Is, is there anybody in the game today from Vermont that you're aware of? <sighs> Currently, no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the most recent players who were born in Vermont actually moved out of state when they were like toddlers. Um, <laughs> one of them is uh, Chris Duffy, who 
was um, an outfielder for Pittsburgh and Milwaukee uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. He had a pretty short career. He was he was a kind of an exciting player. He was a center fielder. He was fast and he was really um, he was known for his diving catches, um, but his but his hitting was not not great, and uh-huh. his career was fairly short. And there was uh, oh gosh, there was another guy um, who played for the A's. Um, so these guys came along after we did our book. After uh-huh. Our book came uh-huh. out in two thousand. Oh, Derek Barton was his name. Okay. Derek Barton. He was a prospect for the A's, um, and he got a cup of coffee. But you know, it's been a while since. Uh, since a Vermonter has done much of anything in the major leagues. Mm-hmm. You know, you said that uh, Ray Collins does have quite a, an interesting lineage, we'll say, you know, dating all the way back to, you know, the Pilgrims, you know, and he lists his nationality, like you said, as a Yankee. What about his family's connection to Ethan Allen and the Revolutionary War? Yeah. So, so, um, I mentioned that, that, um, his family was among the first settlers of Burlington and his, uh, ancestor, Captain John Collins, uh, built the first, one of the first houses in Burlington. And when Ethan Allen was building his homestead in Burlington, he actually stayed with the Collins family Hmm. uh, back in the 1780s. So that's how far back, um, Ray Collins could trace his roots in Vermont. And, you know, it's, it's pretty much, you can't go, you can't go back in Vermont any further than the 1780s um, because uh, prior to the 1780s, this was, this was Indian country. Um, It was the Abenakis who were up here. And during the American revolution, uh, this was controlled by the Indians that were allied with the British. So, um, yeah, you, you you didn't want to be living up in this neck of the woods um, during the American Revolution. It was a pretty dangerous place. Hmm. <laughs> so you also said that his childhood it wasn't the greatest. His father passed away when when he was quite young. Um, how did his mother care for him? And I guess her name was Electa, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And and she turned out to be a pretty smart person, wasn't she? Yeah. So she was, she was savvy. Um, and her husband had been this dairy farmer, but, um, she wasn't going to be a dairy farmer. So she ended up buying property in Burlington at a time when, uh, the city was growing. So she ended up basically becoming a developer. She would buy lots in on the outskirts of town and build these houses, which are now really considered in the heart of the town. Um, these these beautiful Victorian houses um, that are kind of in the northern part of the city. And so they lived in one. They grew up in a house at 76 Brooks Avenue, um, and uh, which is walking distance from the University of Vermont campus. Also, not too far from uh, Edmonds Middle School now, but it was a high, it was the Burlington High School back in Ray's day. Um, and, uh, she, she made ends meet pretty well by developing property at a time when, you know, it was rare for a woman to be involved in business like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then she encouraged Ray to play. I mean, he was a pretty darn good athlete. And if I follow the story correctly, he played three sports at the university of Vermont, one of which of course was baseball. And in his freshman year, he was involved in two pretty historic games. Can you tell us a little about them? Yeah, so uh, I, I, I'm sure you're referring, one of the games I'm sure you're referring to is the first game ever to be played at Centennial Field. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1906, um, our field that we, we, still, we still use here in Burlington for the Vermont Lake Monsters, it's their home field. Uh, even though the University of Vermont disbanded its baseball program in 2009, much to my dismay. Uh, but uh, that beautiful old ballpark dates all the way back to 1906. And the first pitch ever thrown at that field was thrown by Ray Collins, who started UVM's first varsity baseball game as a freshman and, uh, you know, pitched the team to a victory. He also had a couple of hits. And uh, not only was Ray Collins the first player to ever throw a pitch at Centennial Field, but the first uh, batter for Vermont was Larry Gardner, who batted leadoff as a freshman. It's interesting that Gardner and Collins were classmates at the University of Vermont. Mm-hmm. You know, they both entered in 1906. Pretty pretty incredible that two of the greatest baseball players ever to come from Vermont 
both, you know, grew up at the exact same time and were the same year and, you know, played for the UVM team. It's, it's, uh, you know, if I could go back in time, I sure would love to see, see that team in action. And then I, and then I think you're probably referring. So he, he, um, he pitched, a, uh, he pitched, he was their main pitcher during his freshman year. And, uh, he, he took a no hitter into the ninth inning, right? I think he took a perfect game into the ninth inning. And then, and then with two outs, he ended up giving a base, giving up a base hit, but the guy ended up getting thrown out stealing and his, and his, and his classmates carried him off the field on his shoulders as they achieved a one nothing victory over Williams College, which at the time was one of the greatest powerhouses in, in baseball. It's kind of fun when you do research about college baseball in this area, because nowadays, you know, all of the, the college baseball powerhouses are from uh, either the SEC or the Pac-10, um, you know, California, Texas, Florida places like that. But back at in Ray Collins's day, the powerhouse baseball teams were New England schools like Williams College and um, you yeah. know, Harvard and all the yeah. Ivy League schools. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, UVM, University of Vermont, um, was right up there with the best of them and, and produced a number of major league players in that era, including not only Larry, uh, Larry Gardner and Ray Collins, but Ed Rubach, who was a, I bet you're probably going to do a, uh, uh, a feature on him someday because he's mm-hmm. another kind of unsung uh, great pitcher from that era, you know, kind of borderline hall of fame candidate. Um, and, uh, and he, he pitched for the university of Vermont and also for Notre Dame, he kind of transferred around mm-hmm. quite a bit um, and went directly from the UVM campus to the major leagues, just as Larry Gardner and Ray Collins did too. These guys didn't serve minor league apprentices. They went straight to the MLB team right from the campus. So sure. um, yeah, it was, it was a different era back then. Absolutely. And, and when he was pitching for, for Vermont teams in the major leagues were getting wind of just how good Ray Collins was. And I'm re- really referring to two in particular, the Boston Red Sox and the New York Highlanders, who, of course, are now known as the New York Yankees. So those two teams really, I mean, they've had this rivalry forever. And they both showed a lot of interest in Ray Collins. But he decided not to join either team and stick in college. Why was that? So Ray Collins... Uh, he, he bled green and gold. That's the university of Vermont's, uh, school colors. And, uh, and I've read descriptions of, of what his house looked like. You know, he had a kind of like a trophy room right mm-hmm. in the front parlor of his, of his Victorian home on Brooks Avenue. And, and it was just loaded with, you know, all kinds of green and gold, you know, banners and pennants and, you know, trophies and all that stuff from his athletic career. And, and uh, so he he just loved the University of Vermont. He always said throughout his life that the four greatest years of his life were the years he spent at UVM, uh, not not his major league years, but his years in college were really his high point. Hmm. Um, he was he was he was a good student. Uh, he was like a true scholar athlete, and uh, he was he was popular on campus. Had a lot of friends. Was involved in all the you know activities. He and Larry Gardner were both members of the Boulder Society, which is like a secret society of all the big men on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that was, that was, he loved UVM. He, he, he grew up literally a stone's throw from the campus. And uh, so, you know, when, when all these major league teams were coming to him and, and by the time he was a senior, he had offers from, there were only 16 teams in the league at the time. And he had offers from eight of them. So right. half of them, wanted him but uh but he shunned them all until he graduated because he didn't want to give up a minute of his his college experience he just loved the university of Vermont. now contrast that to larry gardner who left after his sophomore year (laughs) to go directly to to the boston red sox and um and ray collins jr who was the Ray Collins we're talking about son who died just a few years ago in my, at the age of like 95 told me that he thought, you know, for, for Collins and Gardner, you know, they were so tied throughout their lives together and yet they were not close friends. And Ray Collins Jr. Always speculated that his father held a grudge against Larry Gardner for signing 
um, with the Red Sox after his uh, sophomore year because um, he he thinks that actually I'm sorry it was after his junior year. Mm-hmm. Um, he thinks he thinks that if he uh, his father thought that if, if Larry had stayed on for his senior year, they would have been you know one of the greatest baseball college baseball teams of all time. And uh, and certainly Larry, uh, Ray had all the same opportunities that Larry did to go pro. In fact, he probably had more opportunities uh, being a pitcher. But um, but you know he 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 stayed in Vermont, and um, there's speculation that he always harbored a bit of a grudge against Larry Gardner for going pro instead of staying oh. at his alma mater. Huh. Interesting. You know. The structure of college baseball and professional baseball obviously was quite different back then than it is today. And Collins, and I'm not sure if it was all of his college teammates, but definitely some of his college teammates, actually played professional baseball, albeit Class D ball in 1907, and I think a couple other places as well. Um, while they were still in college, how did that work? Yeah, so you know, there was no NCAA at the time, and uh, there were, you know, there were not really any kind of uniform rules that applied to professionalism and amateur athletes, and you know, that was starting to develop. Certainly, there were players in that era who would play during the summer. They would play professional baseball under an alias. So they wouldn't get discovered um, by a rival college and get ratted out and lose their eligibility. But ultimately, there was no NCAA that would punish them. It was it was up to their own college to decide whether they were eligible or not. Huh. And and so um, you know if you had uh, uh, and and you know there were um, actually I don't think any of these colleges had athletic directors at the time. Uh, hmm. If there was a question about eligibility, it came down to the faculty. Um, some of the faculty, some of the colleges had faculty advisors on to, to the athletic program, but ultimately, if there was a question about whether a guy was eligible or not, it was probably up to the faculty to decide. And yeah, every college had its different rules. Um, so in this kind of gray area, the whole entire University of Vermont baseball team spent a summer playing professional baseball. <laughs> were they you were know, they paid? Yeah. Yeah, wow. they, they were paid. And, uh, you know, that was, that, you know, even then, um, that might have been looked on as, you know, kind of borderline, maybe they shouldn't be doing that. Um, but, but you know, they got away with it. Um, and, uh, and things like that were going on a, quite a bit. This was the transition era. Um, mm-hmm. You know, probably mm-hmm. five, ten years later, that that you wouldn't have been able to do something like that. But, you know, this was just at the, at the beginning of, of cracking down on the, you know, the line between amateurs and professionals. And so uh, the UVM baseball team walked that line um, and, and probably felt while they did, they fell on the professional side of it, um, but they still managed to continue to play college baseball the following season. And and so, like I said, he also played in a few other places. I guess a couple of the guys might have played in a few other places that summer as well. And we're talking the summer yeah. of 1907. And once he was done with the college team, he ended up in Maine playing for Bangor, a – yeah, yeah, Bangor, Maine, playing for a, a minor league team up there. And they liked him so much, they actually offered him decent money to come back in the summer of 1908. Tell us about the team that he played for in Maine and just how good he was and what he meant to them. Well, um, contemporary accounts say he was the best player in that league. And uh, and that was, you know, that was you know professional league. Um, so Ray Collins uh, – he was, he was, um, the, the keys to his success as a pitcher, he was a big guy for his time. He was six one, one eighty five, which, you know, nowadays that wouldn't be considered particularly big for a pitcher, but back in his era, that was, that was big, mm-hmm. but for, but despite being a big guy, he was not a hard thrower. The keys to his success were number one, his remarkable control. Number two, the fact that he was left-handed. And number three, he had this really herky-jerky, unusual delivery that threw a lot of batters off. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so, you know, you combine 
um, an unusual delivery with pinpoint control, left-handedness, and, you know, the ability to throw a variety of pitches. And you've got a pretty dominant uh, pitcher, um, especially for, you know, playing against college level players. Um, so he was, you know, he was, he was mowing them down in new England and that's why he ended up getting, uh, scouted by so many different teams. Um, he was, he was one of the best college players, um, of his day. Mm -hmm. And after all of those, uh, uh, journeys to Maine or playing with his college team in the summer, he finally comes back to Vermont, um, in in 1909 to put a bow on his college career, and it was one heck of a bow. Talk about his overall career at Vermont and that very special last game he played. So uh, he's got he's got records that you know at University of Vermont that will never be broken, especially since we no longer have a baseball team. Uh, <laughs> during the course of his four years, you know they would only play you know, 15 or 17 games in a season back then. And, uh, and he won 37 games over the course of his four year career. So, uh, that's a lot of victories. That's almost 10 per season mm -hmm. when your team is only playing a you know, 15 or 16 game schedule. Um, so, uh, he was, he was, uh, a phenomenal college pitcher and, uh, and during the senior year, now Ray Gardner or Larry Gardner is already playing for the Boston Red Sox at this point, but they still had a pretty good team, still considered one of the best in New England. And in his very last game, he went up against a team from Penn State and pitched a no hitter wow. to cap off his, his college career. And and then he went from from that game. He ended up signing with the Red Sox, going down to Boston to sign his contract. Um, but he had worked it out with the Red Sox that he would be allowed to come back to Burlington to go through graduation with his class of 1909 at the University of Vermont. And he did that. He came back to Burlington. He ended up giving one of the speeches during the graduation ceremony. And 1909 happened to be the 300th, the 300th anniversary of Samuel D. Champlain's discovery of Lake Champlain. So there was a great big celebration going on. Um, for that for that and, and in fact uh you know just a few years ago for the 400th anniversary <laughs> they had another big i was i was able to go to that so i know kind of what a big deal it was here in burlington but it was an even bigger deal back in 1909 for the 300th because not only did they have um uh a pageant in burlington harbor you know we're right here on lake champlain um and they built a man-made island in burlington harbor where they reenacted Samuel D. Champlain's founding uh, of or discovery of the lake, and his he had a he ended up uh, having an altercation with the with the natives, and they reenacted that on this man-made island in Burlington Harbor, which I wish I could go back and see that. That must have been something. <laughs> uh, but then part of the celebration, they had a baseball game, and Ray Collins pitched for a, a local team against a professional team that came up from Massachusetts. And uh, and he pitched um, a shutout for nine innings, and then he moved to the outfield, and ended up knocking in the winning run in the thirteenth for a one nothing victory. Um, oh, wow. So that was his last last game here in Vermont before he went directly from from Burlington to join the Red Sox on a road trip, and uh, and just a week later he made his major league debut in a game. Uh, against the Cleveland Indians, that is, and it was quite, it was quite the game. I mean, yeah, he, he, yeah. Was, tell us about that game. I mean, he did pretty well at the plate. He did pretty well on the mound, and yeah, something got, happened did, for the first time ever in a major league baseball game. He he got a he got a base hit in his in his first at bat, his first plate appearance, and uh, and this is the game that's best remembered because Neil Ball turned the first unassisted triple play in major league history. So, uh, boy, that, Ray's that always the in the right place at the right time. He's got yeah. a lot of a lot of history behind him. Yeah, his his opponent on the mound for Cleveland that day was Cy Young, pretty wow. interesting guy to be going wow. up against in your first game ever. And uh, and what uh, I think is interesting about this particular game is it's probably the only game in Major League history in which three Vermont-born players all played for the same team. 
Larry Gardner, Ray Collins, and a guy named Ambie McConnell played second base for the Red Sox that hmm. day. Ambie McConnell was born in Pownall, Vermont. And so there were three players born in Vermont in the lineup for the Red Sox all in that one game, which at this point is looking like it will never happen again. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey um, of all the teams that wanted to sign Ray Collins, why did he pick Boston? Was it strictly because of where Boston was located? I, I got to think geography played a big part in that. Um, you know, that's that's uh, Larry Gardner went to the Red Sox also. Um, and, you know, we we have, you know, back in those days, great rail connection to uh, to Boston or certainly better than to almost any other place uh, in the major leagues. So um, it was just a local team. Mm-hmm. It was it was the team that that uh, you know that followed him uh, that that people up here followed most closely and uh, and you know to this day and and I think it was just kind of natural for him to go there um, and it was also it allowed him to get home um, uh, you know uh, more easily than he would if he had played somewhere else and in fact in 1910. Um, he joined the Red Sox in 1909, but uh, in 1910, which was his second year with the team, after the season ended, he came back and brought the entire Red Sox to Centennial Field in Burlington to play an exhibition game, an inter-squad exhibition game. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually one team was led by by Ray Collins, the other team was led by Larry Gardner, oh, and wow. they split up their teammates, you know, Tris Speaker and all those guys, you know, played um, up here in Burlington and, and uh in October after the major league season had just ended. And, uh, it must've been a spectacular, uh, day for Vermont baseball fans to have a major league sure. team come and play up here. Sure. So his first two years with the Red Sox, uh, 1909, he goes four and three and he followed that with a 13 and an 11 campaign in 1910. First, tell us just how well he pitched for the Red Sox after he joined him midway through the 1909 season and what his opponents were thinking of him. So, so um, I had said earlier that probably the, one of the, one of the most important things to Ray Collins' success as a pitcher was his remarkable control. And throughout his career in the major leagues, he ranked in the top five pitchers um, in walks per nine innings. He was always walking fewer than two batters per game. And, you know, that was, that was a huge part of his success. Uh, and for, you know, in that 1912, 1913, 1914 era, uh, he was considered one of the top pitchers in the American league and, and, either he or Eddie Plank would have been considered the premier left-handed pitcher. Mm-hmm. In the league. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Clark Griffith said he was the best pitcher in the league. Uh, and, um, yeah, that was when Griffith was managing the New York yeah, Islanders. Yeah. Uh, and Ty Cobb always said that he was one of the, uh, Ray Collins was one of the toughest pitchers he ever faced. So, uh, so he was a very well respected, um, uh, pitcher during his, his peak years, but it was, his peak was fairly short lived. Um, he had an arm injury. Uh, I think it was in ni- 1915 or 16. He ended up injuring yeah, his before, shoulder. Yeah, before we get there, though, let, let's okay. go back. Let's go back a little yep. bit. Like you did say, Clark Griffith, who was a manager at the time, he said of Collins, and you wrote this, Ray Collins hasn't a thing, yet he is one of the best pitchers in the American League on the two or three or one of the two or three best left-handed pitchers in the game. So you you referred to this a couple of times. What made him so good? His control, his unusual windup, his left-handedness, and his ability to throw um, a number of different kinds of breaking off-speed pitches. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. You know, he was a he was a finesse pitcher. He was not overpowering. You know, that was not his game, but, but, um, but he could put it exactly where he wanted it kind of reminds me of a, 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 a current resident of Vermont, Bill Lee. 
oh. another left-handed pitcher who, you know, they would say he 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 hasn't he hasn't a thing. He could never throw hard, but he could throw any pitch in any count. And uh, and he was a competitor like like Ray Collins. I think they mm-hmm. were similar pitchers. Mm-hmm. The spaceman. The spaceman. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. So again, he went thirteen and eleven in nineteen ten. And then, as the story goes, he fell in love. And some think that actually affected his career, especially in 1911. Can you expand on that period and how Ray was able to turn things around? Well, so in 1911, the Red Sox went out to Redondo Beach, California for spring training. And one of Ray's fraternity brothers was a guy named Jack Lovely who had grown up in St. Albans, Vermont, but his family had moved to the Los Angeles area um, right right around the, uh, the time that Ray and, and Jack were in college together. So when uh, Jack found out that Ray was going out to California for spring training, he said, you got to look up my family while you're out there. And it turns out that uh, Jack Lovely had a sister named Lillian who fit the family's uh, name um she uh she uh ray went out there and met the lovely family and became smitten with lillian and and they started a relationship and and you know some speculate that he was focused more on on his love life than on his uh pitching at the beginning of the 1911 season but eventually he turned it around and and turned in a you know a pretty solid um campaign uh but uh you know it was there was a time at the beginning of 1911 where he got off to a lousy start. Mm-hmm. There was some speculation that he might actually get released. So that 1911 season, Ray did get off to a bad start going three and six, but he turned it around and went eight and six to finish the year at 11 and 12 with a more than respectable 2.40 ERA and 14 complete games. During that offseason, Ray and Lillian married, and the story goes that Ray did not report to spring training in great shape. In fact, he was noticeably overweight. Nonetheless, he went about his business and wound up taking a spike to his knee. The spike, which resulted in an abscess along with the weight issue, were too much to overcome, and Ray did not start the 1912 season with the Red Sox. In fact, he missed the first two months of the season. He finally joined the Red Sox in June and helped lead them to a World Series win over the New York Giants. For the year, Ray was 13-8 and with a 2.53 ERA. He had 17 complete games and four shutouts. Okay, sidebar. The series was a best of seven, but game two ended in a 6-6 tie after 11 innings. So the Red Sox actually won the World Series four games to three, plus a tie. While Ray didn't figure in any of the decisions, he did appear in two games, starting one and relieving in the other, for a total of 14 and one-third innings, in which he gave up just three earned runs. Smokey Joe Wood... He won three games for the Red Sox, and Hugh Benedict won the other. So 1913, Ray Collins goes 19-8. and And then 1914 comes about, and that was a very turbulent year for baseball. The Federal League was organizing, and many players in the game were using the Federal League to their advantage, including Ray Collins. First. Yes. If you can tell us a little bit about the Federal League, where did it come from and and just how did it plan for success? All right. So so uh, the Federal League was a challenger to the American and National Leagues, uh, just like the American League had been a challenger to the National League um, only, you know, 15 years earlier. So um, so. Uh, what, what what the uh, Federal League owners did is they invaded mostly minor league towns, you know, the, uh, 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 places like Buffalo and Newark, New Jersey and Baltimore. Um, but uh, but also went head to head in places like Chicago where, uh, you know, the, uh, the Chicago Whales um, started off in what we now know as Wrigley Field. That, that ballpark was built for the Chicago Whales of the Federal League. Uh, and, play, and in Brooklyn, uh, they had a team called the Tip Tops that. <laughs> you know, battled against 
the Brooklyn Robins, as they were then known, um, or or the Dodgers. Some people call them the Dodgers, but uh, so so it was a rival league to the major leagues, and and I think you know the hope uh, amongst the federal league owners is similar to the hope of. Uh, of the people who started the American League and and the people who started the American Basketball Association many decades mm-hmm. later, and uh, you know the people who started the USFL in football many decades later, they hope that you know they can cause enough hardship to the existing established leagues that eventually they'll merge. <laughs> and I think that was always the kind of the the hope from uh, from the federal league owners. Um, that they would, you know, be able to exist long enough that eventually they would be able to become part of organized baseball. Um, but, you know, through a series of lawsuits that Judge Landis sat on, <laughs> they never ruled on, uh-huh. um, uh, they basically eventually ran out of money. And, uh, and you know, the, the, the story is that Landis ended up getting his job as commissioner uh, you know, kind of in rec- uh, as a reward for sitting on the lawsuit so long um, that, uh, you know, where the uh, the Federal League sought to challenge uh, the established major leagues um, under the uh, Sherman Antitrust Act. So, um, but, but Ray Collins had the good fortune to be at his peak at a time when the Federal League and the established leagues were, were competing over players. Players jumping contracts. They were getting tw- two and three times more than they had earned, you know, just a couple of years earlier before the Federal League came into existence. And Ray Collins was was very active in the Baseball Players Fraternity, which is kind of a predecessor of the Major League Players Union. Uh-huh. And uh, and so he was, you know, he was looking. Uh, to 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 make money for himself and also to uh, you know to set to set a standard um, for his fellow players um, because he was he was a leader in that movement so he ended up you know doing quite well in his contract negotiations uh, by leveraging the federal league. Ray did leverage the federal league to his benefit. The Red Sox offered Ray a contract for forty five hundred dollars for the nineteen fourteen season. Ray felt that wasn't enough, and he wanted $5,000. Right around the same time that the Red Sox offered Ray the $5,000, the Federal League came calling and offered Ray a three-year deal at $5,000 a year, but with a $7,500 signing bonus. So Ray spurned the Red Sox, sent a letter back saying that he now wanted $5,400. Management was not happy. Management said they thought they had an agreement. Ray thought about it, and yep, he agreed to the $5,000 and reported to spring training only to find that several of his teammates claimed their contracts weren't good and they were going to jump to the Federal League. Ray didn't know what to do. The Federal League wanted Ray bad. Ray sought the advice of family and, in the end, When Boston placed a deadline on Ray to sign with the team, he ultimately agreed to a two-year deal, partly because he was fearful of just how solid the Federal League was. Well, of course, the Federal League made it just two years. Indianapolis won in 1914, and Chicago won in 1915. As for Ray Collins, he went on to enjoy the best year of his career. That 1914 season, I would say, Ray more than satisfied his contract. He went 20-13, and 13 and the team's top pitcher, Smokey Joe Wood, was ill, and they needed someone to fill in his shoes or to fill his shoes in, and Ray did. So he had a very strong 1914 season, and it's crazy to think, here's Ray Collins on top of the world. 1913, he goes 19 and 8. 1914, he goes 20 and 13. He basically establishes himself as the team's number one pitcher. Uh, He has a 2.51 ERA. So over the course of two years, he wins 39 games. Along comes 1915. And he's relegated to the bullpen. What happened? He had a shoulder injury. And it never was 
diagnosed, um, but he just just he just couldn't pitch the way he had before, and it was just a, what has happened to so many players in Major League history. You know, they get off to a good start, and then you know an injury causes their career to be a lot shorter than 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 it would have been. And, you know, Ray Collins is a classic example. We'll never know what he would have gone on to become if he had just stayed healthy. But uh, he was certainly on a, on a good trajectory when, unfortunately, he had this problem with his shoulder. What's, so, what's, interesting, yeah, what's interesting about that shoulder injury is that, you know, he, so he, he finally he just gives up. He, he gives up trying. He's, he just can't do it. He comes back to the farm here in Vermont and uh, – and around 1922 or so, after he's been out of baseball for, you know, um, six years, he continues to pitch here and there for, for you know, kind of local teams when barnstorming teams would come to play uh, at Centennial Field in Burlington. He would pitch for the locals and his shoulder came back, hmm. uh, not through any kind of surgery or anything like that, but he just somehow it came back to him. His ability to pitch returned. And, um, you know, he, he even, it even crossed his mind to try to make a comeback. Um, but he never did. And so, you know, there's, there's stories about like in 1922, a, a, a traveling black baseball team, um, for Brooklyn came up to Centennial. It was a high power team and, you know, up comes Ray Collins to pitch for the, uh, for the local team and and just shuts down this 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 traveling this barnstorming black huh. team and afterwards the players are like who are you you know who are you <laughs> you learn to pitch like that you know why are you pitching here um and uh you know he was this former major league standout and uh who had lost his ability to pitch because of an injury but then miraculously it came back six years later but he was but he, he never, was he, he was too old to go back, or he yeah, just didn't want to, to, or what happened there? He was established. He was married. You know, they were living on 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 the farm. He couldn't really leave his his dairy cattle, and you know, he just had a life here at that point. So he, you know, he ended up uh, he ended up staying in Vermont. And I think that um, you know he probably regretted that decision because because um, his life in Vermont was a struggle as a dairy farmer, he had some really terrible luck. Uh, he had taken his, the money he had saved from his baseball career to invest in a state of the art milking parlor. And before he could get a chance to buy insurance on it, it burned down. Oh. So, you know, he lost basically everything he had saved from baseball. And, um, and you know, as I had said before that, that farm that had been in his family since the 1830s, is kind of a ledgy farm. It's really rocky. It's, it's wet. It's, 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 uh, it's not, a, it's not an easy place to, uh, to be a dairy farmer. And so, um, you know, he struggled, he struggled on his own on that farm, just trying to make ends meet. And, you know, as the years went on, his family would take in borders, um, you know, that kind of like a predecessor to today's bed and breakfast, uh -huh. you know, taking people who were, uh, you know, tourists in Vermont, they would come and stay with him on his farm. And, uh, he had a sugaring operation, you know, you make maple syrup by chopping all the trees on his property. Um, and, and, you know, that was, a, that was an important part of, of, of his livelihood, um, uh, making maple syrup. So, you know, he was just kind of the quintessential Vermonter. He was just, uh, you know, kind of doing a, a, a bunch of different things to try to scrape together a living. And, uh, but, you know, throughout those years, he was always considered uh, a great leader in our community. Um, he had he coached the University of Vermont baseball team. But, he, you know, again, it, it took too much time away from the farm for him. So he ended up giving up the gig. And it turns out that Larry Gardner ends up in getting that, that job huh, after huh. Ray Collins gives it up. And, you know, Gardner remains the baseball coach for decades and then eventually becomes the athletic director at UVM and lives a very, you know, comfortable existence, you know, in, in sports, you know, dealing with college players. Um, you know, he, he had a very he really enjoyed his post baseball career, whereas poor Ray, you know, was on that farm by himself, you know, trying to, you know, milk all those cows and raise all those crops and, you know, on the tractor, you know, late in, into the evening, his son told me, you know, he'd be out there with a light on his tractor, you know, at midnight trying to like 
you know, just raise his crops. Um, was and, it a sad uh, life? Yeah. I mean, Ray, Ray Jr. When he talks about his dad, he, 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 you know, he, he says his dad was kind of a, you know, like kind of a bitter guy, which is, which is, and you can almost see it when you look at photographs of Ray Collins from throughout his life. You know, he's never really smiling, whereas Larry Gardner, you know, big smile on his face, happy-go-lucky, kind of a sprightly guy, you know, Ray Collins, kind of a big, dour, you know, um, was kind of like a sourpuss, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, and then as, as he got older, you know, he had, health problems um in 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 1962 they had a 50th anniversary of the boston red sox world champion team from 1912 at fenway park and ray collins you know he walked with a cane he was actually you know sometimes in a wheelchair and he and he would go out he was going to fly down to boston for that he really wanted to be a part of that that you know 50th anniversary celebration Uh So he and his, and his family would go out to the airport. And he would practice boarding the airplane. Wow. Yeah. For, for, you know, he did, he would go out there several times to just practice getting up and down those stairs. So he could make sure he could get on to the airplane on the big day when it was time to go down to Fenway park for the 50th anniversary, you know? And so, so, um, so life was, life was kind of a struggle for him, but, uh, Nobody from the outside would have known that because, you know, again, he was this, he was the big man on campus at UVM. He'd gone on to the major leagues. He came back here. Everybody knew him. Um, everyone, you know, respected him. He was constantly getting jury duty for some reason, but every time he would be on a jury, they would name him the foreman. You know, <laughs> during World War II, during World War II, he served on the local um, draft board and you know was very instrumental in you know uh um uh supporting our troops overseas by you know um having all the farmers you know continue to raise their crops and donating you know food to the to the to the soldiers and you know just just um you know serving um here in colchester on the the on the uh town council and and you know be, being involved in, in politics uh, of course, everybody up here in those days was Republican. Nowadays, everyone's Democrat or independent <laughs> or a Bernie Sanders supporter, progressive. Um, very few Republicans left. But back in uh, you know prior to nineteen prior to nineteen sixty, Vermont was a Republican bastion, and mm-hmm. uh, so you know Ray Collins, you know he was he was a pretty conservative guy, and um, so he was he was a he was a leader in the community and well respected, but you know, not, not, not really a happy guy, you know, mm-hmm. cause he was struggling. He was, it was struggling. It was uncomfortable for him. He never, he never could, he never could ease up, you know, and farming is a hard way to make a living. Sure. And if you've got, if you've got, you know, injuries from your playing days and, you know, as you age, it gets harder and harder. And, and, you know, he, he had no choice. He had to keep on doing it. You know, his, his son's, his, his, his son did not come back to to the farm and someone on the medical school you know mm-hmm. good for him yeah i sure. think ray probably would have said you did the right thing kid you know yep. stick stick with it yeah um but you know poor ray was left you know to to try to make him living on his own and and uh and it was a struggle you know the the, the name of this podcast is sports forgotten heroes and we take a look back at guys from all the different games uh who whom time has forgotten and they might have been famous for one game. They might have had just one great hit, a great season, um, and sometimes, obviously, a great career. In the end, how do we quantify the career of Ray Collins? You know, I would say that it is a career that was cut short. And so we'll never quite know what he would have become if he had just stayed healthy. Um, but certainly during, you know, the four or five years that he was able to pitch in the major leagues, he was one of the best. And if he had continued on for another 10 more years, um, you know, we'd be nobody, everybody would remember his name because of course the Red Sox of that era had some powerhouse teams and, you know, he would have been fortunate to, to play on 
you know, all of those teams until they sold off all their players to the Yankees. And that's a different story. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was, he was, he was in the right place at the right time. If he only could have stayed healthy, you know, and I think that he would have been, you know, his name would be a lot better known now. Um, uh, if, if he had, if he had just managed to stay healthy. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes, and I sure do hope you would consider coming back again. Maybe we could talk about Larry or even Bertie Tebbets. Sure. Happy to do it. Anytime. Awesome. Well, again, thanks so much. Uh, you know a lot about Ray Collins. I love your enthusiasm for your now home state of Vermont, and it was a real treat having you uh, on the show. Thanks. It was my pleasure. So Ray Collins played seven years in the majors, all with the Red Sox. His best season came in 1914 when he went 20-13 and 13 with a 2.51 ERA, 16 complete games, and six shutouts. For his career, he was 84-62 and 62 with a career ERA of 2.51 as well. There's no telling how good he could have been, but his career was certainly going in the right trajectory before it was cut short by the shoulder injury. But when you look back at his entire body of work, including his time at the University of Vermont and the few years he played minor league ball while he was still in college, I think it's pretty fair to say that Ray Collins certainly enjoyed a wonderful baseball career. Thank you again to Tom Simon. You can read more of Tom's work at saber.org. That's S-A-B-R dot O-R-G. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore the career of a terrific power hitter for the Cleveland Indians, a guy who was overshadowed by greats like Lou Gehrig and Jimmy Fox. We're talking about Hal Trotsky, who had a very powerful swing. That's next time. For now, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.